tossing and turning all night like a salad, it's time to put those sleepless nights to bed for good. Enter Tanasi, my sleep saviors, and they have science to back up their sleep, anxiety, and pain-relieving powers. Back in 2016, they invested a $2.5 million grant to Middle Tennessee State University to study the hemp plant. Turns out their special patent-pending CBD-CBDA formula is twice as effective as CBD alone and can be more effective than over-the-counter ibuprofen, acetaminophen, and aspirin. So if you're tired of tossing and turning like a rotisserie chicken, then Tanasi's got your back with their range of great products from tinctures to gummies to lotions. Tanasi is my go-to when I can't sleep or I have way too much anxiety. I'm so glad that I discovered them. So go to Tanasi.com and use the code POWER to get 25% off your order. That's Tanasi.com, T-A-N-A-S-I, to get 25% off your first order with the promo code POWER. Sober Powered is sponsored by BetterHelp. I was a stress drinker and I thought if only I didn't have so much stress, I wouldn't have to drink this much. But do you know why I had all this stress? Because I didn't have the skills to take stressors off my plate so they built up and wore me down. Some stressors are big and others are small, but carrying around 25 minor annoyances is going to have an impact on you. Plus, did you know that alcohol messes with our stress response system and decreases our ability to handle stress? It makes small things seem like a much bigger deal. Learning how to manage stress and take things off my plate has changed my life. I'm calm, I'm less reactive, and I believe that I can handle whatever comes my way. I feel proud of the way that I handle things now. You can get there too. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com sober to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash sober. Are you tired of your digestive system feeling like a circus act gone wrong? Introducing Ritual's 3-in-1 Gut Superhero Symbiotic Plus, a probiotic, prebiotic, and postbiotic all rolled into one. And with 25% off with the code POWER, there's no better time to check out Ritual. Let's break it down. Probiotics are like the cool kids at the gut party, keeping everything in check and making sure the good vibes are flowing. Prebiotics are their wingmen, fueling the party with all the right snacks to keep the good bacteria thriving. And postbiotics, well, they're like the cleanup crew, sweeping away the mess and leaving your gut feeling fresh and fabulous. So say goodbye to the gut drama and remember, there's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com power. I'm Jill, and this is the Sober Powered Podcast. I'll tell you how I finally stopped chasing the buzz and what I've learned along the way. Welcome back to the Sober Powered Podcast. I'm Jill, and if you're new here, I'm a sober scientist who talks about the science and psychology of addiction. If that sounds interesting, please subscribe. Today, I'm going to talk about the stigma that exists for mental illness and alcoholism in particular. I'll discuss the history of treatment of the mentally ill from ancient times up to present day. 
you'll learn how alcoholics are viewed based on information from several national surveys from all around the world. And I'll end this episode by talking about how this stigma of having a drinking problem impacts people's decision to get help. So let's dig in. It's estimated that about half of the people in the U.S. will have a diagnosable mental illness at some point in their lives. Despite this large number, only half of people with mental illness will ever get treatment. There are a few reasons for this, including cost and lack of access to qualified doctors, but a major reason people don't seek treatment is because of the stigma associated with having a mental illness. In ancient times, it was believed that mental illness was a supernatural problem caused by demonic possession. A common treatment for possession was a procedure called trephining. It involves chipping a hole using an instrument called a trephine into the skull to create an opening that was supposed to release the evil spirits. This probably didn't end well for the patient. People with mental illness were also treated with religious rituals, such as exorcism. In many cultures, mental illness was seen as God's punishment and something the person caused themselves. These beliefs and practices began to change when Hippocrates denied that supernatural forces were the cause. He believed that mental illness had natural causes, just like physical illness. This idea wasn't automatically accepted, especially in religious communities. Mental illness was commonly called devil sickness, and care of the mentally ill was left to their family. Because of the shame attached to mental illness, many people were hidden away or abandoned. This led to the creation of institutions, where the mentally ill were removed from society and banished to the countryside or confined in prisons and dungeons with inhumane conditions. Out of sight, out of mind. In Victorian times, which were the 1800s, a woman could be considered mentally unbalanced for many reasons, including menstruation-related anger, pregnancy-related sadness, postpartum depression, disobedience, chronic fatigue, or anxiety. Women could be put in institutions for really normal, common problems, which were labeled as hysteria. Women basically had no rights during this time, and disobedience was met with severe punishment. People with mental illness were put in institutions that were very similar to jails. They weren't given the opportunity to leave no matter how much they wanted to. They were treated in very cruel and inhumane ways. In the 1840s, a woman in Boston named Dorothea Dix began to research conditions in institutions. She spent years conducting interviews with experts and patients and published a piece describing cases where the mentally ill were chained to their beds, kept in filthy conditions, and abused. In the 1880s, so 40 years later, a writer named Nellie Bly posed as a mentally ill woman and documented everything that happened to her in a series of articles, which later became a book. She described the harsh treatments she received, including solitary confinement and hair pulling. A major point of her writing was to showcase how horrible institutions actually were and that they didn't seem to be helping anyone get better. This made the public care a bit more about what was actually happening to the mentally ill, where before it was out of sight, out of mind. 
Despite this, in the late 1800s, people began to believe that criminality, intelligence, pauperism, addiction, and mental health problems were hereditary. In the early 1900s, several states in the U.S. forbade alcoholics from getting married and pressured them to undergo sterilization in an effort to not pass down their addictions. In 1907, Indiana was the first state to pass a eugenics law approving forced sterilization for certain individuals in state custody. The people sterilized were confirmed criminals, idiots, imbeciles, and people who committed sexual assault. Somewhere in here, that included alcoholics. A committee of experts, which was usually made up of two surgeons, would evaluate the patient and approve sterilization if they decided the person had no chance of improvement. This act was overturned in 1921. In the 1950s and 60s, a full 70 years after Nellie Bly's writing, a wave of deinstitutionalization began. Patients were moved from psychiatric hospitals to outpatient or less restrictive residential settings. Antipsychotic drugs were also developed during this time to make a person's life outside of an institution more manageable. Between 1950 and 1980, the number of institutionalized patients dropped from 560,000 to 138,000. This doesn't mean, though, that conditions were any better. It was just a change of location. It appeared better. A study conducted in 1988 found that 28% of homeless people had a diagnosable mental illness. In the 1990s, experts found that many people with mental illness also entered the criminal justice system. An alcoholic had three bleak options institutionalization with other psychiatric patients, jail, or homelessness. Lobotomies were developed in 1936, and this was used as a last resort method to cure addiction by Dr. Walter Freeman and Dr. James Watts. By 1960, 100,000 prefrontal lobotomies had been performed in the U.S. Patients that were targeted for this procedure included those judged to be alcoholics, drug addicts, sexual deviants, and people with excessive eating habits. A lobotomy involves inserting a stylus through one of the eye sockets and severing the nerves between the thalamus and the prefrontal and frontal lobes of the brain. The idea behind the procedure was to induce significant changes in personality and thinking, but it just resulted in leaving patients apathetic and childlike. The treatment did not cure addiction, and according to the book Slaying the Dragon, a patient went right to the bar after his lobotomy, and by the time doctors found him, he was drunk. So it definitely had no effect on someone's desire to drink. Not once in all of the examples I just gave was a mentally ill person looked at with kindness and compassion. The social judgment and poor treatment of people with mental illness makes them less likely to seek out help and makes it easier for their condition to worsen due to isolation and shame. Stigma is as a sign of disgrace or discredit, which sets a person apart from others. The ancient Greeks came up with this term to describe a mark that was cut or burned into the body 
which designated the person as someone who was morally defective, such as a slave, criminal, or traitor. In the mid-1900s, sociologist Irving Goffman defined stigma as an attitude that spoils a person's identity, reducing him or her in others' minds from a whole and usual person to a tainted, discounted one. He said that these negative evaluations and stereotypes are well known among members of a culture and become the basis for excluding, avoiding, and discriminating against those who possess the stigmatizing mark. He proposed that someone associated with a stigma progresses from normal to deeply discredited in society. Psychologists propose that stigma may have evolved among humans to avoid the dangers that accompany living with other people, like people who may carry parasites or other infectious diseases, or those who may be a poor partner, genetically speaking. A psychiatrist and medical anthropologist at Harvard proposed a new term for stigma, since he said that the term stigma is overused and has lost its meaning. This new term is social death. He says that people who are stigmatized experience social death when others in society hold attitudes and behave in ways to turn the stigmatized person into an other or a non-person. A lot of his work is based on observations of the way mental illness is viewed and treated in some of the world's emerging economic powers, like China and India. Being viewed as a non-person leads to dehumanizing treatment, like in China where they made psychiatric patients wear outfits like prisoners, prohibited them from participating in family events, or chained them up. Another example of dehumanizing people with mental illness is a large number of mentally ill Americans who are homeless. I think I've talked about feeling other a few times on this podcast, so I think it's really interesting that that is included in the definition of social death. It's a feeling that I really identify with. Whenever I socialize or go out to a restaurant, it's clear that I'm the abnormal person. You might argue that everyone else is abnormal for drinking highly addictive poison, but in our society, drinking is normal and having a problem with alcohol is weird. So I'm not looking at the substance, I'm looking at the norms of society. So based on our norms, I am the abnormal person. It can be very intimidating to go out and feel so much different from everyone around you, but I've let this feeling of being other remind me of my strength. It's not easy to go against the group. We talked a lot about views on mental illness, but I haven't really mentioned alcoholism specifically yet. It's less likely to be considered a mental illness than other disorders. In the U.S., a 1999 study looked at which mental illnesses were actually considered mental illnesses among the general public. They found that 88% of participants considered schizophrenia a mental illness, 68% for depression, and only 49% thought alcoholism was a mental illness. A similar study in 1995 in New Zealand found that 95% of participants classified schizophrenia as a mental illness, 57% for depression, and only 32% for alcoholism. Similar results were found in an online survey in Canada in 2008. 
Other addictions like illicit drugs or gambling were judged similarly. Beyond not being considered a mental illness, problem drinkers and alcoholics are judged to be more responsible for their condition than people suffering from other mental illnesses. Two studies in the UK in 1998 and 2003 found that 60% and 54% of people, respectively, believe that alcoholics were responsible for their problem. Only people with drug addictions were more harshly judged, with 68% and 60% of people thinking they are responsible for their drug problem, based on two studies from 2000 and 2005. I think the most interesting findings were from studies in Germany in the 1990s and early 2000s. So if you're listening from Germany, I have a lot of German studies to talk about. So these studies found that 85% of people thought alcoholics were responsible for their problem, and three out of four participants considered lack of willpower to be the cause. Another common perception of alcoholics was that bad character was to blame. Even in the U.S. in 2006, 65% of participants cited bad character as the reason for alcoholism. In Brazil, three different studies in 2008 found that 82% of participants thought weakness of character was to blame. Similar studies in these same countries found that an alcohol-dependent person evoked more anger and repulsion and less empathy, understanding, and pity than people with schizophrenia or depression. Overall, alcoholics were rejected far more than any other mental illness. There were some interesting studies done in Germany and the U.S. where participants were asked who they'd rather not have as their neighbor. Alcoholics were rejected by 60% of people. Only people who were addicted to drugs were rejected more than alcoholics. A follow-up survey in 2006 found no changes in these opinions. Another German survey in 2004 looked at the desire for social distance towards four mental disorders, alcoholism, schizophrenia, depression, and Alzheimer's, and five medical diseases, cancer, myocardial infarction, AIDS, diabetes, and rheumatism, by asking participants if they'd be willing to rent a room to these people. 78% of people rejected the alcoholics. 64% of people rejected people that are schizophrenic. 53% rejected people with Alzheimer's. And 42% rejected people with depression. People with AIDS were rejected by 33% of people. And all other medical diseases were rejected by less than 10% of participants. I think this result is really fascinating. Out of every condition listed, the only one that's actually transmissible is AIDS, but only 33% of people wouldn't rent a room to someone with AIDS. They'd even prefer a person with AIDS over a person with depression. What is the depressed person even going to do to you? They'll likely just hang around in their room and be quiet. So I'm really interested on, on how these thoughts came about. A 2001 national survey in Germany gave people options from four mental and five medical conditions. They had to choose the three conditions 
where financial means for treatment could best be saved, meaning three conditions where we don't need to spend money trying to treat these people. Out of all the conditions, alcoholism ranked number one, with 78% of people saying we shouldn't spend money trying to treat people with alcoholism. This was followed by depression with 37% and rheumatism, which is basically arthritis, with 34%. Preferences for public funding on research for mental and physical conditions followed the same pattern with alcoholism being the condition where funds should be spent last or not at all. These findings were replicated in 2004. A 2001 review published in Alcohol and Alcoholism looked at many different population studies on the stigma of alcoholism and other mental health disorders and found that people struggling with alcohol are the most severely stigmatized. The only survey where alcoholism wasn't the most stigmatized was in Ethiopia, where people with leprosy, schizophrenia, and tuberculosis were rejected more than people with alcoholism. The prevalence of alcohol dependence in Ethiopia is only 1%, according to a 2019 study. Most people in Ethiopia actually don't drink, so maybe that explains why they don't view alcoholism as harshly, because it's not part of their culture like it is for many other countries. This review highlighted how drinking alcohol isn't stigmatized, that it's actually associated with inclusion and may even be a signal of power and status. They discuss how heavy drinking is even socially acceptable at weddings, business meetings, and parties. Stigma weakens and isolates those that are labeled, which just makes the problem worse. A 1992 study found that 40% of people with alcohol problems did not seek treatment because of the stigma of being labeled an alcoholic. So there's a fine line between what's socially acceptable for drinking and what's considered a problem and turns you into someone people feel uncomfortable around. Based on the 2015 National Survey of Drug Use and Health, 15 million people over the age of 18 have alcohol use disorder, but only 6.7% of them get formal treatment. The same survey in 2018 found that there are likely 14.4 million adults struggling with alcohol use disorder, but only 7.9% of them receive treatment. I don't think that formal treatment is required for 100% of people, but it would definitely be helpful to more than 7 or 8% of people struggling with alcohol. The stigma around being a problem drinker or an alcoholic is so strong that it makes many of us isolate and hide away to prevent being labeled and judged. We worry about our jobs, our relationships, and what people will think when they find out. I worried about being labeled an alcoholic for a long time, and it kept me stuck trying to pursue moderation. If only I could learn how to be a normal drinker, then I wouldn't have to be labeled an alcoholic. That label carries a ton of shame with it. Even when I quit drinking and began talking about it, I was very quickly labeled by other people. I've had people refer to my alcoholism and call me an alcoholic, even during podcast interviews, and I've had people online mention my addiction. 
even this morning, someone commented celebrating me for being so open about being an alcoholic. And the comment just made me cringe. I think for a good amount of us, the terms alcoholic and addiction make a lot of us feel really bad about ourselves. For some people, it can be really empowering, but I think it's something that shouldn't automatically be assigned to us. I do understand what it looks like to not understand. Remember, I didn't start drinking until I was 22, so before that, I thought people with alcohol problems were weak. When I started drinking, I thought I'd never let that happen to me, but it's not something that we allow to happen or that we're able to resist. It's either something that's present right away, like in my case, or something that creeps up on you so slowly you don't even realize it until it's too late. We will even use the stigma to allow us to continue drinking. We compare ourselves to society's view of a typical alcoholic, and since we're not that bad, we can't possibly have a problem. I had that view for a really long time, and it just holds us back from getting better. Just because you're not that bad doesn't mean your drinking isn't bad. The reason that I speak out about my drinking is because perfectly normal people who were good kids, never experimented in school or partied, are highly educated, and are able to maintain a full-time job, can also have problems with alcohol. I'll allow people to label and judge me so that those of you who can identify with my story will see that you don't need to destroy your life or live under a bridge to have a problem. We have to remember that the majority of people believe we are weak-willed losers who just have to work on our willpower and that just 70 years ago, problem drinkers were forced to get lobotomies to try to cure them. Society has a really long way to go before the attitudes about mental illness and addiction can improve. And I think a big contributor to that is people sharing their stories. Our stories are all really important, so I encourage you over the next week to share your story either on your social media if that's something that you're comfortable with or even in a sober Facebook group where everyone there is just like you. If you share part of your story, it will help other people who may just never even tell you that it helped, and it'll also help you reduce some of the shame that you might be feeling around your own drinking. So I hope this episode was interesting. I loved researching this one. I think the information from all those surveys was fascinating. And again, if you're enjoying this podcast, please make sure to leave me a review and rate me on iTunes so that we can get the word out and get more people to listen. And I will talk to you guys next week. I'm 
Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how-tos for navigating all the things sober, from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories, and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.